What is going on, everybody? Hopefully, you guys are all doing well out there. That's right. We are back again on the Sports Card Show podcast. Hopefully, you guys had a good Thanksgiving. Hopefully, you guys are having fun. Whatever you're doing right now, maybe you're at work. Maybe you're on a run. Maybe you're just doing stuff around the house. But uh, glad you picked the Sports Card Show podcast uh, to entertain you at least here for a little bit. Um, again, hopefully you guys had a good Thanksgiving. I know we're all getting ready for the, the holidays, buying Christmas gifts and getting the plans together, getting the tree up, getting the ornaments on there and getting the lights up, doing everything that, that has to do with that. But we'll, you know, we'll take a break from all that and get to talking about some sports cards and, uh, things like that. So, uh, I had some nice feedback on the last show, talked about how group breakers needed to ship base cards. And I was actually surprised, like... You know, like people definitely agreed with that. I mean, and so it shows me that uh, maybe breakers aren't delivering that. And, and I think if you if you are a breaker that, uh, you know, ships out base and you really do, you try to make your best effort there, you probably should advertise that and really use that as a unique selling point. And what I mentioned on the show is maybe give people the option where it's like, obviously like some of this stuff or a lot of these products that people are breaking or people are really into are kind of these one hit wonder products or, you know, all hits or five cards and they're all hits. So there's not, not a ton of, a ton of base, but, um, I would certainly give the option for somebody if they didn't want their base cards, they should get a percentage off. They should get some money back, um, something. I think that'd be a way to um, maybe attract some more buyers, but definitely shipping out your base, uh, definitely a good idea. And it seemed, based on the feedback I got, that's what customers are looking for. And if you're going to run a successful business, you're going to try to run, um, you know, you're going to try to deliver for your customers, at least successful business do that time and time again. Uh, Got a lot of good feedback on our Make America Great Again segment, which was basically like, hey... You know, you got all all this media giving you tax advice and giving you uh, economic advice and weighing in on the stock market and Bitcoin and whatever. And most of these people majored in, uh, you know, Eastern European religious studies or, uh, you know, finger painting or, uh, you know, Middle Eastern basket weaving or communications or liberal studies. Uh, or theater. Most of these people that are giving you advice on the economy never sat through Economics 101, never sat through uh, you know, any kind of accounting course or behavioral finance or any kind of uh, personal finance class for, for that matter, let alone some of the upper echelon ones you take if you decide to major in that category uh, when you're in school. Or continuing your education, listening to economic podcasts, reading economic uh, papers and white papers and and theories and uh, studies and uh, looking at data and studying uh, these types of things. Most of these people are not doing that. So there is absolutely no reason for you to listen to them when they're talking about tax cuts, the economy, or anything of the sorts, because they literally have no idea what they're talking about. So... On today's show, we'll definitely have a Make Make America Great Again segment, but today is really going to be like personal finance, okay? It's going to be slanted towards personal finance. So even if you don't want to make America great again, I'm going to give you a little bit of personal finance because I think that's definitely lacking as I go through my Twitter stream and go through kind of the, the news streams and stuff like that. Economics 
finance, the stock market. A lot of you guys have an opinion on it. Almost none of you guys know what you're talking about. So I'm going to hopefully educate you guys a little bit there. We're going to talk about player-worn versus game-worn. It's a discussion that we've had in the past, but this came up also on my Twitter stream. Uh, A Harmon Killebrew card that contained a piece of Majestic, had a patch of Majestic, which is a brand of baseball jerseys. Um, This company did not exist when Armand Krillabru played. So obviously this was some kind of, uh, you know, event worn or coach worn or something, some kind of uh, other, you know, material. And people weighed in on Twitter. Oh, this is something that has happened before, you know, and all these excuse makers came up like, like we didn't know this. Okay. But first of all, this was a national treasures, the national treasures product, which, I'm I'm not an expert, but I, I'm pretty sure that's a $300, $400 product. Number two, I didn't see the language on the back of the jersey. I didn't see that they might have labeled that as coach-worn, player-worn, etc. So we don't know how Panini was presenting that patch card as well to collectors. So I'm going to talk about that. Talk about also the from the angle of new collectors, casual collectors, people that are just getting into it people that are just getting back into collecting, how they might view a piece like that. Yes, people that listen to podcasts and people like me that have had card shops and been in the hobby a long time, maybe we're comfortable with this. Maybe we're comfortable with this being the direction the hobby is going. Maybe someone that is just getting back in the hobby is not so comfortable with it. And uh, you know, it's something that, that may, may or may not be needs to be addressed. Next thing, my brother actually had a podcast where he broke down Leaf. Uh, Brian Gray was a guest on Beckett Radio's podcast. I believe they were at um, a card show in uh, Canada. Can't remember the name of it. It's, a, I think, Expo or something, the Canadian Card Expo or whatever. So that goes on. And it's kind of like the Canadian National, I believe. I think it's the biggest card show that they have up there. So that they ran into him. And uh, my brother, you know, played some clips on the show. And so if you, if you want to hear that, I, I encourage you to go look, uh, listen to the R-rated podcast over on sportscardradio.com. Um, but, but I'll have a little, few comments on that as well. And we'll talk a little bit about Check Out My Cards as well. They made a few, a couple of minor changes, but, but kind of interesting changes to the website. We'll also talk about the Black Friday promotion. We'll also talk about what kind of fee changes could they, they be? You know, I think we're, we're anticipating a fee change coming into the new year. I think uh, uh, Ryan telegraphed that last time he talked to Tim, uh, the founder and owner of Check Out My Cards. He kind of telegraphed that sometime in 2018, I don't know if it'll be the first of the year or first, first or off the bat. I don't really know. I honestly have no idea. But I love speculating. Instead of like going and figuring it out and, you know, maybe sending an email or a phone call, I'd rather just sit here and speculate. I think that's actually more fun than actually trying to go and dig for the facts. I'm, again, I, I, uh, I didn't major in journalism or fact-finding or anything like that. Um, I think I'd rather just sit here and speculate. And then finally, again, I'll get to our Econ 101 Make America Great Again segment. For all of you guys out there that uh, don't understand economics, don't understand the stock market, think that uh, tax cuts are only going to benefit the rich when half of America doesn't even pay taxes, half of America doesn't even pay income taxes, or there's not a net payer 
of federal income taxes. So half the country doesn't even pay. We'll talk about that. First thing is first, player-worn versus game-worn discussion that we've had. Again, people that listen to this podcast, people like you right now, are aware of the differences and are aware a lot of these rookie products are player-worn. Um, quite a bit of stuff is player-worn. And uh, you know, from time to time, the companies do a, a marginal job at explaining this to collectors. But then you'll have situations come up where it's in a higher-end product. And, and for me, it's like 10 years ago in National Treasures and, and some of the quote-unquote higher-end products, was there a lot of player-worn stuff? Were there sticker autographs? Were there a lot of redemptions? Certainly there wasn't sticker autographs. Certainly there was a lot less player-worn stuff in those kind of products, especially of the veteran players. But now that is commonplace. Now it's common to have player-worn material, to have sticker autographs, to have a lot of boo content in these four, five, six hundred dollar boxes, which bottom line really are, are, are likely high margin products for the card companies. Because think about it, okay? You know, Panini puts Kobe Bryant autographs in 99 cent packs and $999 packs. It doesn't cost Panini, you know, it, it's the, the cost to make a National Treasures card is marginally probably more expensive than to make a uh, you know, 99 cent pack cart. So it's not like they're, they're, they're putting in a lot of extra, extra money and extra overhead expenses into these high end products. So the margin is pretty good. Obviously they make less of them. And quite frankly, the cash cow for these card companies are stickers for Panini and series one base, uh, for tops. Those are the, you know, and, and opening day, surprisingly for most of you might not realize tops opening day, Makes a ton of money for Tops. When they had Tops Attacks, that was like their biggest selling product. These uh, Tops Now cards, which are increasingly have autographs and things like that attached to them. But, uh, you know, uh, Tops makes a little bit of money on those when they're just base cards. So, this high end stuff, especially, it bothers me a little bit that we're including player worn stuff, we're including coach worn stuff. And there's not a clear explanation on that. On the front of the card, the back of the card. Again, the card companies tend to do it here and there. It's hit and miss. My guess is whoever's laying out the cards may or may not know these types of things. It's not always maybe uh, clear when the cards are being made or when the, you know, the guy in the Philippines is, is you know, designing the cards and laying it all out. But is this the direction we want the hobby to go in the next 10, 15, 20 years? That in $500 products, you're getting player-worn stuff or stuff that wasn't even worn in a game or stuff that it's a jersey that was, you know, from a manufacturer that didn't even exist when that player played. I mean, we're getting so far removed from what this is. And yes, the, the patches look nice. It's kind of cool. I'm sure new collectors really may or may not care. 
But collectability-wise down the road, how collectible is a card like that really going to be? Is it really going to hold their value? I was seeing like one color Michael Jordan, like the original 1998 Michael Jordan jersey cards would sell like unautographed, sell for like 10 grand. And maybe part of that is Michael Jordan's not, not having a ton of basketball cards recently. Certainly not a ton of jersey cards. So I'm not sure this is a great direction for the hobby. I think the card companies would be wise to innovate in different ways, create value in other ways. Hard sides, you know, work on getting more hard side signatures in this high end products. These four, five, six hundred thousand dollar products. There's no excuse to have a sticker autograph in that. I can get a sticker autograph out of a 99 cent product. If I'm opening up 99 cent packs, two 99 packs, I certainly expect there to be some sticker autographs in there. Certainly expect there to be some player worn material in there. It's not really going to bother me. But there's a reason why people who have the ability and the funds to buy cards, like myself, don't buy these high quote-unquote high-end cards. It's because a lot of it has player-worn stuff or has the wrong jersey in there. Has a questionable jersey. Has a jersey that, that looks like it's from another team has a jersey from a manufacturer that didn't even exist when the player played. At some point, this stuff doesn't make sense to me, doesn't make sense to a lot of collectors. This is, again, why the new card market, why I'm consistently negative on the new card market, the brand new box, the boxes that are a year old, two years old, three years old, where you're paying full price for something that really isn't worth it. The quality is starting to slide. The attention to detail is sliding. And the differentiate the, the difference between a $400 product and an $80 product actually has gotten less wide. Whereas 10 years ago, when you were opening up a $400 product, your hands would shake. There was a level of excitement. Now, you know, I, I don't think that excitement is there anymore. And I think card companies would be wise to create some value in some other ways. If you're going to be making a four or $500 product, put some effort behind it. Create some unique selling points. Market the product a little bit. I mean, these card companies' idea of marketing is a, a PDF spreadsheet that, that loosely gets spread around, a blog post that's like four or 500 words with some photos, and that's it. Honestly, that's it. That's the marketing. There's no, uh, you know, buildup. There's no, um, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, a any kind of like movie has a trailer, they send the, 
<coughs> excuse me, I've been sick a little bit, so we might have some some cough breaks. But um, think about a movie. You know, you got trailers. You've got the actors going on the the Tonight Show and uh, the the you know late night shows. You might have special releases at uh, certain times, certain venues. You might have it in 3D. I know the movie business compared to the card business is like comparing, um, you know, a supermodel to an 80-year-old grandma, but, uh, you know, you get the idea. I think there could be some buildup. There, you know, not necessary. you know, these card companies do the same thing every time. It's literally a, a, a two-page PDF spreadsheet. You get a 400-word blog post with Tracy Cackler trying to pull out every superlative that he learned at, at whatever English degree or marketing communication degree that he learned. And, and that's it. Literally, that's it. There, there's no, no there's, I, I, you know, there's a lot else you could do. Like I said, special, you know, just look at the movie business. Look at the video game business. I think this first off the line is kind of interesting. I think you could do more things like that. Have first off the line boxes. Have uh, special, you know, special types of boxes. I mean, I know we have hot boxes and things like that, but I think you could market those things better too. I think you could advertise that those things are available. I think try to create that sense of I'm searching for something. I'm hunting for something. I'm on the lookout for something when I'm opening this product. Not just, here's a PDF spreadsheet, here's a checklist, here's a 400-word blog post, and have fun, guys. You know, it, it, you know, they leave all the marketing to a card shop, which are dying, okay? I mean, you guys live within uh, an hour of a card shop. For me, it'd be, you know, I'd have to drive hours, to find a card shop. And even if there was one 10 minutes away, quite frankly, I, you know, do I want to load up my baby and into the car and get him out and get him back in? Pro- probably not. And then they leave it all up to these breakers, which are breaking on kind of like a third world website. Okay, you have like Twitch. They could be streaming on Twitch, on Facebook Live, on YouTube. No, most of the breakers stream on on a website 99.9% of collectors have never heard of. Wouldn't know how to find. Okay, whereas Facebook Live, everybody has Facebook. Build up enough audience with your Facebook Live, it literally will send a notification to your phone. Build up enough audience on your YouTube page, it'll send you a notification on your phone or your email. On Twitch as well, the same kind of thing. There's multi-billion dollar streaming platforms and breakers break on a website, again, 99.9% of people have never even heard of. So, no, no, you know... You leave your marketing and pimping of your products to guys that stream, you know, have the choice to stream on YouTube, one of the world's top five websites, could stream their 
uh, breaks on Facebook, which I think is the world's number one website, or could stream their breaks on Twitch, which has got to be, again, a, a top 10 website, maybe even a top five website as well. But no, they stream their breaks on a website that, again, 99.9% of people have never even heard of. So no wonder nobody knows about breaks. Nobody cares about breaks. This is why there's 50 million of you and 0.0 of you guys make any more money today than you did three years ago. (laughs) So we went from player-worn to game-worn to marketing, but it is all wrapped up into the same thing. Information, marketing, promotion, all ties into the hobby, and there's just a lack of it. I mean, I know there's a lot of products and stuff like this, but this is what you guys get paid to do. It's, it's really not that hard. I mean, I, I, I don't really promote this show. God knows if I did. God knows if I had a contest attached to every show and, and uh, you know, retweet me for this card. God, you know, it'd be pretty easy. I personally don't have time for all that, and people find the show anyways. I'd rather people listen to the show on their own uh, their own merits than uh, than you know to win some stupid card. But but we're not selling anything here. We don't have advertisers. We're not trying to make money here. You guys literally promote your products about as well as this podcast. But you guys you know rely on these products to make money. And for your livelihood. I, I don't know what marketing courses and what marketing skills you guys have. If that's the case. And my point, you know, talking about marketing, talking about permitting, putting out information. If Panini got out in front when this guy tweeted, hey, this, this jersey's a majestic jersey, the dude didn't didn't play when Majestic existed. If Panini just got out in front, they, again, they don't have to answer the question. If Panini just got out in front and said, you know, oh, we see your concerns. I'm going to, um, we're going to have this, uh, I'm going to forward this to the product manager. And if you leave me your contact information, he'll contact you. That's all they have to do. Panini doesn't even do that. They don't even get out in front of, of these types of things. With a canned response. That's all it takes is a canned response. Panini can't even put out a canned response. I mean, it's like PR 101, marketing 101, and it doesn't get done. You guys would get Fs, like literally. would like If you went to a college, especially a halfway decent college, you guys would get Fs with the effort that you put in to what you do. I mean, it's ridiculous. It really is. And um, again, that's why I'm not not at all, not at all enthusiastic about new cards or, um, you know, the new sports market. If you're trying to make a living off this, I mean, again, you're trying to make a living off of products that the company themselves would get an F in a marketing class trying to promote it because their, their idea of marketing is a two-page PDF, a half-page blog, 
and a list of names of the cards. Like that's, that's marketing a set these days. I mean, you got to be kidding me. There's no storytelling. There's no treasure hunting. There's no uh, imagination, no creativity. It's literally the same thing after same thing after same thing. And it actually would be okay to have the same product, but you could market it in four, five, six, seven different ways. So it actually make it look different. Okay. It's not like Tops is putting out different products all the time. It's not like Tops gets A plus in their marketing either or their storytelling either. But especially, you know, Tops has some heritage, some, some uh, you know, collector goodwill built up over decades. Panini has been around not even for a decade, basically, providing, uh, you know, mid to high-end cards. But moving on. Okay, we could, t- we could talk about marketing and the fact that this player-worn stuff is, is shown up in $500 boxes. And, you know, it, it, it's not going to change because the leadership and the talent at these card companies, I hate to call it talent because it's, it's, it's not talent. It's some of the worst, uh, you know, I mean, I know eighth graders that, that could uh, put a marketing plan for a set of cards together far better than what they're doing at uh, Panini and virtually every other company uh, that's out there today. And that, that is the state of the, the new card market. And again, if you're relying on this stuff for your livelihood, I would be looking for a second, third, fourth, fifth income stream. Because you're, you're not, you're not going to move up the ladder. You're not going to move up the pay scale uh, with that being the case. With eighth graders being able to do um, as good or a better job than what's being done now. That's not good. Moving on, Leaf, Brian Gray, as you recall, two, two shows ago, I'm, I'm not going to try to spend too much time on this because we already, uh, you know, lit the coals and barbecued these idiots already. If you're not familiar, Damian Lillard was presented an autograph that was being sold on eBay and not once but twice on Twitter said it was fake. Brian Gray went on Beckett Radio, who I'll remind you, Beckett Authentication was the one that authenticated the autograph that Lillard said was fake. So Beckett has its own reputation to protect. And I would imagine that, uh, I I haven't listened to the Beckett Radio podcast, um, but I can imagine that uh, the people at Beckett Radio are not going to be barbecuing their own authentication uh, service. So as my brother put it, going on back at radio was a safe space for, uh, you know, as a comfort zone for Mr. Brian Gray. So, and I actually did him a favor. He texted me twice, left me voicemails, DMs on Twitter. I could present all this information as well, if need be. He wanted, like, was begging to be on the show. And the last person that did that was Josh Cade, who most of you probably don't even know, but is essentially an Uber driver 
Went from group breaking to streaming on uh, Cardworld TV, another third world uh, streaming website, and uh, is now Uber driving. Okay, his career was long gone after he appeared on the show, and I embarrassed him. So I actually did Brian a favor because he said some things on Beckett Radio, whereas if the host of that show would put down the cards, put down the cheeseburger, and grab a nutsack and attach it to his body, would have actually pressed Brian Gray on a couple of his statements because two of his statements, one in particular, made absolutely no sense. Absolutely no sense and only reinforced how stupid and idiotic these quote-unquote authenticators are and how stupid their arguments are. First one, right off the bat, Brian Gray claimed that he quote-unquote educated Damian Lillard not to sign uh, for autograph hounds and only sign for kids. He said he tried to educate Damian Lillard. Well, turns out the autograph in question was actually originally on a blank white sheet of paper, essentially. And the, the print of Damian Lillard was actually printed on top of it. So it's an autograph hound's a trick to just have blank white pieces of paper with them, get any athlete that they find to sign it, and then they go print that athlete's picture over the top of it. So clearly, this was an autograph hound who acquired this signature. And so Brian Gray said he informed Lillard not to sign those kind of pieces. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. If Brian Gray says, hey, I taught Lillard not to sign these kind of pieces, but oh, wait, this was a piece from his rookie year, that doesn't make any sense. Either Brian Gray didn't teach him very well, or it was a fake. Second thing, and the most damning argument that Brian Gray tried to, tried to make, and the host of the shows actually agreed with them, which shows you, again, guys, put down the cheeseburgers, put down the cards, stop fondling them, go get a pair of nuts, and attach it to your body, because clearly you don't have any. Brian Gray literally said, I signed checks, I signed cards, and I, I couldn't tell my own signature. Brian Gray literally said he couldn't authenticate his own signature. Why in the hell would he then be able to identify Damian Lillard's signature from five years ago? Again, Brian Gray admitted he wouldn't be able to authenticate his own signature. Why would he be able to authenticate anyone else's, including Damian Lillard's, from five years ago? If you can't authenticate your own signature, isn't it reasonable to assume you can't authenticate some other person's signature either? Clearly, okay, my audience, Sports Card Show podcast, Longest running podcast in the industry. Lots of other podcasts have come and gone. This one continues to, uh, to continues to deliver 
for the audience year after year after year after year because I don't insult your intelligence like that. If somebody came on this show and said, I can't authenticate my own signature, but I can authenticate somebody else's from five years ago when I wasn't even there, you better believe I would, after I stopped laughing, I would roast that guy like a chicken on a barbecue. Because unlike these other card, it's not just the Beckett guys. Every other card podcast person needs to put down the cards, put down the cheeseburgers and fries, put down the Maxim magazines, pick up a set of nut sacks and attach them to your body. And while you're at it, go find a brain and insert that into your head because it makes absolutely no sense somebody that can't authenticate their own signature could somehow authenticate somebody else's. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. I have no idea who these guys think they're fooling. Some of you guys, maybe you're that dumb. Maybe you're that gullible. But I'd like to think 99.9% of the listeners of this show realize that's the dumbest claim. I mean, it's, 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 it, there's no words for how stupid that sounds. I mean, it, it, it's like me saying, you know, I, you know, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't make a layup on a four-foot hoop, but put me at a, in an NBA game with the NBA Finals on the line, and I'd stitch a three-pointer. That doesn't make any sense. That's like me saying ah, I couldn't pick up the the ugly girl. Uh, you know, I couldn't hit, pick up the ugly girl at the bar the other day that was 40 pounds overweight, but I could go to the Victoria's Secret, you know, model shoot and I could get four of them in bed that day. That doesn't make any sense. And that's the exact kind of argument uh, Brian Gray made. It's like saying, oh, I, you know, I couldn't get that minimum wage job bagging groceries at Lucky's, but... I bet if I applied for Google, I'd, I could be the CEO. I mean, it's just so stupid and so ridiculous. I'm not going to spend much more time on it. But if you're a podcast host out there, if you have an audience, you're insulting the hell out of them by allowing a guest on your show to make those kind of claims. And then literally they sat there and, and agreed with them. They literally sat there and said, oh yeah, I, I, I could sign stuff. I wouldn't know it either. But oh, oh yeah, you're, uh, I'll take your word on this Lillard and take your word on, on anybody else. I mean, it's so stupid. It's, I, you know, I, I don't know what else to say. It is that dumb. Moving on, check out my cards couple minor changes. I noticed that they have a rookie year and rookie RC um, uh, little icons next to the cards. I think that helps kind of visually see when you have a rookie card. I know it helps me 
with the older cards. Some of the newer cards, it's very obvious. But if you have like a 1970 card, 60s card, they weren't often labeled as rookie cards. So it, it helps to see, oh, wow, that's actually a rookie card. You know, it might be a no-name player, but it is their rookie card or it's a rookie year card. And so I think that helps. And maybe with some of this other stuff, maybe if it's a, you know, a sport you're not familiar with or one of the sets that don't really label it as well, I think that's nice. It also makes it easier to do searches and things like that. The other like just minor little thing that I saw that was actually pretty cool, if you click on like inventory manager and you go to your cards without a price, if you are the only if you have you own the only card uh, and there's none for sale, if you own a card and there's none for sale, Check out my cards. Uh, there's a little saying. I think it says you have a COMC monopoly, implying that you have the only card. You have a monopoly on that card, so you could list. You know, you kind of control the price on that. So I thought that was kind of cute and kind of clever. And uh, so we're moving into you know, check out my cards. Kind of telegraphed that uh, they're probably going to be making some fee changes, likely to. Align the fees a little closer to what you find on eBay. So, for example, if I have a single card, if I have a $100 card and I sell it on eBay, I'm going to be paying, you know, I'm going to be paying a final value fee. I'm going to be paying, um, I'm gonna be paying some other fees on eBay. And um, so, so, Check out my cards is trying to align that. And so there might be changes to the cash out. There might be changes to, I know Amazon, the way they kind of change their fees, the way they leverage their fees is they actually charge for storage. So they charge you um, a lower amount from January to about October is kind of a lower rate. It's actually a pretty cheap rate to where you don't even really think about it. It's not really that big of a deal. But from October to December, your fees like for storing stuff in their fulfillment center, which is the same as what we all do. If you have check on my cards on check on my cards, you're literally storing your cards at their fulfillment center. The fees go up big time, like huge amount of money. And so I could see check on my cards, you know, again, I'm speculating here. I have no inside whether any of these ideas will be implemented, but I could see something like, you know, it's one cent a month, for cards that have been in there for 12 months, then it goes to two cents for, you know, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months. And then anything 18 months or older is three cents to kind of encourage inventory turnover and encourage people to not just sit on cards for, for long periods of time. I don't know if that would do it. Um, I'm just speculating there. But um, might create some buying opportunities if something like that happens. I think they've leveraged their, um, you know, submission fees a little bit. I think they raised the price a nickel and guys flipped out. And obviously that had no impact on, on check out my cards at all, just as I predicted. I remember there was people on Twitter. Oh, my God, this is people are going to leave the site. Guys, you guys are absolutely, you know, there's a, again, there's a reason why this show has been around for nine years. It's because we know what we're talking about on this show. We don't try to BS you and go, you know, make claims that, that really aren't true, okay? Check out my cards can raise their fees. It's really not that big of a deal. There's no, no other comparison 
terms of being able to have somebody fulfill your shipments, have it cross-listed onto Amazon and onto eBay and onto another platform that has plenty of customers as well. There's nothing like that. They can raise their fees. They have some price leverage. It's not like you card manufacturers or you breakers out there that have 50 other competitors and have no pricing power. But point I wanted to make on checking my cards was I think cash is going to be king, okay? Because if they raise the storage fees, which is I think is possible, then I, you know, you probably don't want to have a bunch of cards. You know, I think I'd rather have cash. If they lower the cash out fee, I probably want to have cash because then I could either withdraw it or, um, you know, I, I could do whatever I want with it. I think the last thing I want going into a fee change is probably a bunch of cards sitting on the side. So I had a nice, I had some nice sell through. I know my brother had, I think he sold over $1,500 worth of cards. I've got like $93 in my $100 account. So I started an account with $100 and I have $93 in there and I have 1,400 cards. So I, I, you know, I've heard hating on checking my cards for a number of, you know, people complain about it for a number of different reasons. You guys either don't like money or don't like free cards or both. Because again, I started an account with $100 two and a half years ago, three and a half years ago. I can't remember exactly when it was, probably three, three and a half years ago at this point. I have virtually all the money back, all the cash back from my initial investment, and I have 1,400 cards, which I could put in a port sale and probably liquidate for 200, then I'd have $300. I could buy a pretty nice card, or nice couple cards, several cards, or go buy another 1,000 cards uh, with that money again, if I wanted to. So I think cash is king. We could see some guys tilt. I could definitely see that. The fees change. Storage fees goes up on, on some of this low-end base or whatever. Something like that happens to counteract the, the 20% cash-out reduction, which I think is pro- likely going to happen. I could see some guys tilting and doing port sales or doing massive sales and kind of tilting their, their portfolio off the site. And in that case, I want to have cash to buy all those cards from people that are impatient or irrational or don't know how to make money. So I'm going to keep um, you keep trying to sell cards through the, through the year. I'm also um, selectively buying baseball prospects. So I'm selectively buying uh, baseball prospects because at this time last year, you could have been buying Aaron Judge cards for nothing. Cody Bellinger, I don't think was, I mean, he was, a high, he was a highly touted rookie, but she probably could have been picking up his cards for cheaper than what they went for. So I'm going to be, um, you know, chair picking some rookies. If I, you know, I'm not looking for, to get the next Aaron judge. I'm just looking to get some guys that'll probably get an opportunity in 2017. There's plenty of baseball prospect websites out there. I don't know anything about baseball prospects. But there's enough websites out there that tell you, hey, this guy could come up. This guy could play. This guy could be there. So I'm picking up those guys with the hopes that they make it up to the major leagues and I can profit. So we'll see if that strategy pays off. 
but um, that's the only thing I'm buying at the moment. Again, I, I you know I want cash going into a fee change, and if you know all things being equal and they lower the cash out fee, I might take some cash off the table, buy some Bitcoin or something that's up like a thousand percent this year. <laughs> Imagine if you'd like all the money you spent on cards just in the last 12 months, if you'd put it into Bitcoin, some of you guys would be multimillionaires. I know for a fact, if, if some of you guys took all the money you spent this year and put it in the stock market, you'd have 20, 30, 40% return on your money, depending on what sector you put your, put your if you bought like NVIDIA or Tesla or Amazon, you'd be up even more than that. So nice segment, nice segue probably into our last segment here. This is our Make America Great Again segment. And usually I say if you don't want to make America great again, the podcast is over for you. But it's, it's not going to be Trump, super Trump heavy. Okay? I'm not trying to like lecture to you guys here either. Try to convince you, you know, you guys that are vote Democrat, no matter what, I'm not trying to convince you to vote for Trump. In this segment especially though, I want to give you a little bit of economics 101. And just to give you a little bit of background on myself, I've actually taken economics classes in college. I took behavioral finance. More importantly, college is just, in my opinion, most degrees, including the one that I have, is worth about as much as the paper it's printed on. I tell people all the time, a degree is a really nice looking piece of paper that looks really nice on the wall. I know a lot of people with degrees that I would never hire if you know they'd work $5 below minimum wage. I know a lot of people that simply graduated high school that I would hire in a heartbeat and pay them a, a, a reasonable wage. However, on top of that, since taking economics classes for the last, gosh, it's been 10 years now, I've listened to podcasts night after night after night that bring on renowned, published, typically very old economists, people that are experts in how the economy works, how money flows, not always, too, on United States economy. They're experts on the European economy or an emerging markets economy or in North America's economy or in Asia's economy. Night after night after night for the last 10 years, I've been educated nightly by economists who are not always right. And if you, if you study, uh, you know, the field of economics, it's part art, it's part science, it's part philosophy as well. And then there is hard data and actually looking at numbers. And I think that's what's lost when you guys are getting your economic I hate to put it like that because it's really not. When, when 
the CNNs of the world and the MSNBCs and the politicos and these kind of websites that are trying to give you economic advice, the New York Times, the Washington Post, these are not economists that are giving you their opinion on the economy. These people, again, studied Eastern European religious studies in college. They didn't study the economy. They know nothing about how the economy really works. Their view of the economy is through a partisan lens, whereas the, the economists I listen to nightly are very rational. And most people that invest in the stock market are very rational. And so that's my very first tip, economics 101. If you cannot be rational, if you cannot rationally listen to a Republican's opinion of the economy, a Democrat's opinion of the economy, an independent's opinion on the economy, if you can't rationally listen to them and decide if what they're saying makes sense, you need to go to Edward Jones, you need to go to Charles Schwab, you need to go to Fidelity, turn your money over to somebody that does have that ability to rationally decide is someone like Donald Trump good for the economy or bad for the economy? Irrational people, people that have not listened to what Trump says, will tell you he is bad for the economy. Economists that are very rational will tell you his policies. If you open up an economics 101 book, Donald Trump is literally reading from an economics 101 book. That's why I always laugh and I always chuckle at my Twitter stream, at news articles. I don't watch CNN. I don't watch MSNBC, but occasionally you'll see clips on Twitter in particular, and you'll see opinions of people that, again, work a desk job or work uh, at Home Depot, they, they give your opinion, they're giving their opinion on, on the economy. And I, and I chuckle because Donald Trump is literally, his economic, Donald Trump's policy is literally out of an economics 101 textbook. To get the economy rolling, and the economy is rolling in the United States. However, most of you may or may not know this, under Barack Obama, the economy never achieved over 3% GDP, which is gross domestic product, never achieved a, three, a greater than 3% growth during that period. Now, the stock market went up 200%, but the gross domestic product of the United States never achieved three, uh, a greater than 3% growth. And to give you some context, I heard on the radio today during Ronald Reagan's term, the economy, uh, I think GDP got as high as 7%, 7%. And to also give you some context around the importance of GDP, with GDP growth, it diminishes, I don't want to say it eliminates, but it diminishes the importance 
of, the nas- of paying down the national debt. If you can grow the economy and GDP rises, that means more money is flowing through the systems, more taxes collected, uh, the economy is growing, business is growing, people's wealth is growing on top of that. That means Washington, D.C. collects more money than they likely were expecting. Which means if they overspent, which they have, and continue to do, it, it diminishes the importance of that. Here's an example that some of you may understand. Imagine if you have $3,000 worth of credit card debt right now. And let's say you have a job to where all, right now all you can afford to pay on that credit card is the minimum payment. That's all you can afford is the $25 minimum payment. As you know, by looking at a credit card statement, if you continue to only pay that minimum payment, that $3,000 balance turns into like, I don't know, like depending on your interest rate, it could be like $15,000 and it could take you 10 years to pay it off if you only make the minimum payments. Now, imagine if your salary starts to go up. That is exactly like GDP going up. Imagine if you have $3,000 worth of credit card debt, all you can afford is the minimum payment, but all of a sudden your salary doubles. Then it, you know, or maybe not doubles, but it goes up 3%. Then it goes through, and then next three months it goes up 3% again. And then it goes up 3% again. So all of a sudden you've got a 10% raise. And it keeps going up 3%, 5%, 6%. Guess what you're going to be able to do after three months, four months, five months, a year? you're going to be able to afford to pay more than the minimum balance. And so that's exactly why it's important that GDP rises. And one of the reasons why GDP, again, the stock market rose 200% under Barack Obama. That's great. (laughs) Loved it, okay? Me personally benefited exponentially during those years. The average person didn't. The reason why is Barack Obama's economic policy only achieved a small portion of what, he could, what it could have done. So Barack Obama increased spending. In fact, Barack Obama added more to the deficit of the United States than any other president before him combined. And some conservatives um, might... Uh, you know, take, take issue with that. Personally, again, me being a rational economist, a rational finance thinker, the economy was so bad when Barack Obama took over, he did absolutely the right thing. Absolutely the textbook thing was to increase spending. uh, Economics 101 textbooks tells you when the economy is bad, you increase spending and, and you cut taxes. That might seem kind of counterintuitive to a lot of you. When the economy is struggling, that means the United States government is going to start collecting less money because people are leaving the workforce. They're paying less taxes. 
Businesses aren't growing. In fact, they're contracting. The government needs to take it on the ass, increase spending, actually needs to increase their spending, and cut taxes at the same time to get the economy rolling. Barack Obama only did one of those things. That is why the stock market rocketed to new highs, in part because low interest rates were enabled. I would argue that if Barack Obama would have increased spending and cut taxes, like an economics book 101 tells you, we wouldn't have had to have massive printing of money and massive buying of bonds from the Federal Reserve. They wouldn't have to do that, and they wouldn't be in the position they are now of trying to unwind that balance sheet that has trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of assets on that. That's not the Federal Reserve's job, not their role. They shouldn't have had to have done that. If Barack Obama had stuck to the economic 101 textbook of, again, he did a nice job increasing spending, but he should have cut taxes at the same time. That would have led to GDP growth greater than 3%. The reason why he never saw GDP growth greater than 3%, Barack Obama did not cut taxes. In fact, he essentially raised them through two ways. Raised them through the Affordable Health Care Act. Number two, second way he raised them is through all the regulation that he laid on top. So instead of hiring workers, instead of hiring uh, you know, plant operators, you had to hire CPAs and lawyers to handle all the regulation, environmental stuff, all the stuff you had to worry about under a liberal president. So now you have Trump, who is going to increase spending, but he's going to cut taxes at the same time. That is, go- that is economic 101 going to keep the economy moving. That's why I had people on Twitter saying, oh, a, cra- a crash of the stock market could happen anytime. A crash of Bitcoin could happen anytime. Guys, that's not even economics 101. That's like fourth grade knowledge that that kind of thing happens every time. Also, a very amateur an extremely amateur thing to say. The longer you're in the stock market, you realize the people trying to pick tops and bottoms and crashes and, and bull market runs, they're morons. They're idiots. They don't know what they're talking about. Anyone trying to pick the exact top when this stock, you know, you might as well go to Vegas. Honestly, you, you probably have better odds going to Vegas sports betting or maybe even playing like roulette or like when a slot machine's going to hit than trying to predict when the stock market is going to crash or when uh, you know it's going to go back up or the price movement of a stock. You're an absolute moron if you try to predict that stuff. So economics 101A is don't try to predict a crash. Have a plan. Have an investment plan based on current market conditions and based on events that could foresee, happen in the foreseeable future. Have a plan that, hey, if the data, if economic conditions, if the situation arises that all of a sudden we see that the markets are going to deteriorate, have a plan for that. 
have assets that grow in value at the same time. Gold, silver, likely Bitcoin as well, would all do very well in any kind of market crash. Additionally, don't be scared of any kind of market crash. Anybody that's out there, oh, I'm so worried the stock market might crash. You, you got to be careful. You got to... It is far easier to make money in the stock market when everything is going down in tandem. When everything is going down like clockwork, it is easy to predict. It's easy to know what's going on. We have a bull market right now, but the retail sector has been left behind. Macy's, Target, Gap, all these stocks are struggling. Oil stocks have gone nowhere. I don't want to say nowhere, but these, you, know, you have sectors like the chip makers that are, that are all up 100%. You have stocks like Amazon, up huge. It's Tesla, up huge. Google, Facebook. Microsoft, up huge. You really have to be a, a stock picker. You have to know what you're doing. When everything's going down in tandem, and it's going down in flames, it, it's really easy to understand what's going on. It's really easy to make money. Remember, too, you can make money when the market goes up. You can make money when the market goes down. And if everything is going down in tandem, it is not hard to make money. It is not hard to protect your assets. In fact, it's incredibly easy. So if any of you out there, oh, I'm so scared of the stock market. It's up 300% in eight years. I'm so scared of it pulling back 30%. Go give whatever money you have to Edward Jones, Charles Schwab, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade. I don't care. You are not capable of managing your own money. You're not. You're not there yet. You don't have the education level. You don't have the right attitude. It'd be like me saying, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit podcasting and uh, you know, I'm going to go try out for the Lakers and I'm going to be starting for them next year. And that's basically like you guys thinking that, oh, you know, I'm going to invest my money and I'm so worried the stock market's going to go down, you have the wrong attitude. Lastly, last point I'm going to make on our economic, hopefully you've learned something on Economics 101. So let's recap a little bit. GDP is gross domestic product. This is basically like the nation's salary. Think about it as like your salary. It didn't rise more than 3% under Barack Obama. The last, I think the last two readings have been over 3% under Trump. And if it wasn't for the hurricanes, it would have been close to 4% in the last quarter. That is um, getting back to a point where the country really needs to be, especially with the debt level we need to be. Quite frankly, it'd be nice if we had a year or two where the economy grew by 5, 6, 7%. There'd be some inflation worries and some inflation stuff that you might have to worry about uh, if the economy rallied that hard for, uh, for a year or two, but nothing to be overly concerned about. But that would help Washington collect more money since they have overspent for decades, 
well, well before Donald Trump even had a twinkle in his eye to run for office, Washington has been spending way more money than they have. So it'd be nice if the economy grew. And if you open up an economics 101 textbook, it'll tell you how you get the economy to grow is actually spend more and cut taxes. And Donald Trump has actually got a nice balance. He's not really proposing a ton of uh, spending or egregious spending. And he's proposing tax cuts that uh, are very reasonable and will do, do some things uh, for the economy and certainly encourage business to form and grow here in the United States and not take those jobs and that money to Mexico or to Dublin, Ireland, or to uh, China or wherever it might be. Last point, repatriation might be something that you've heard of might be something you have no idea what it is. You hear that these corporations, Apple in particular, Apple has billions and billions and billions of dollars. Apple literally could buy Tesla, Disney, and I think Netflix. Apple could buy, think about that, Tesla, which is like super, I mean, Tesla might not be a great example. Tesla's like, like the most valuable car company in the world. Might not be a great example. But something like Disney, Netflix, which would fit nice into the, the Apple portfolio, and trying to think of something else Apple could buy. We'll just, we'll just do, you know, well, we'll throw Tesla in there. Tesla, Netflix, and Disney. Apple could buy all three of those companies and still have money left over. Imagine that. Imagine being that rich. Okay, one of the reasons why Apple doesn't do this or hasn't even tendered an offer for any of those companies is because all that money is parked overseas. And the way uh, Apple does this is called, uh, I think it's called inversion or something like that. And don't quote me on this, but I believe the technique is what Apple does is they make uh, all their phones in China. And then what it does is it's... It, it basically, it's more complicated than this, but in essence, Apple sells those phones to a company in Ireland or in a tax haven uh, spot, which I believe is like Ireland. Then that company, that quote unquote company, then sell, uh, there's, it's more complicated than this, but to, to keep it kind of low level, Apple makes their phones in China quote unquote, sells them to a company in Ireland, which then sells the phones into the United States and then doesn't have to pay taxes on that. But all that money earned has to stay with the company in Ireland. Because if that money was brought back to the US, it would be at a, uh, a much larger tax rate than makes sense for Apple. Now it inhibits Apple from buying a company like Disney buying a company like Netflix because why would if you had a hundred billion dollars parked over in Ireland, would you really want to you know bring it back over here and have to pay 35% tax on that? No, you wouldn't. When in Ireland you're paying like nothing. Doesn't make sense. Apple doesn't want to do that. 
doesn't want to have to, to do this kind of inversion technique would much rather bring that money back to the United States for a number of different reasons. Primarily to pay dividends to its shareholders and to buy back stock to make it more valuable. Because I, I think a lot of people don't understand this. Corporations' number one priority is shareholders. It's not their employees. It's not its customers. Now, obviously, we, as shareholders, I want Amazon, I want Apple, I want them to take care of their customers. But as a shareholder, their number one priority is me. Now, if they have debt, the number one priority is the bondholders or the debt holders or the bank. But right underneath that is me, the shareholder. That is why when Disney fired 150 people today, the stock went up. Because the stock doesn't move on the employee's morale, it moves on how much money they're going to be making. For me. Companies' number one priority is not for broke people out there. It's not for you guys out there on $1 a month Obamacare who are, who, who are collecting a free cell phone and you're getting your EBT card or whatever it's called, wherever you live, you're getting your free food. That is not Apple's priority to pay you money or to give you money or make sure that your lazy ass gets any money. Get a fucking job. And after you get a job, go invest your money with these companies. Now, you might say, well, oh, Trump's tax plan is going to pass. Apple's going to bring back all this money. They're going to buy back stock. They're going to pay dividends. I'm going to go buy Apple stock. Well, guess what, guys? People who were smart, people like your podcast hosts here, have been telegraphing this since the moment Trump won. So for over a year, this is why the stock market has gone up and up and up, even though everybody, again, everybody predicted when Donald Trump was elected president, the markets would crash, we would get bombed, or we would start bombing people. The world would start ending. Everybody would start hating us. In fact, actually, the opposite has happened. You could argue our, our allies, our, our relationship with other countries has probably gotten better over the last year. Our stock market has gone up to record highs. So all those people were wrong and dead wrong. Not just wrong, but dead wrong. So if you continue to believe them, if you continue to listen to them, shame on you. Okay? Fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on you. So like I said, these companies are going to be repatriating money. Apple, Microsoft, I don't really know. There's probably a list out there of the companies that have the most. I know for a fact Apple probably has absolutely the most money. But again, their stock is bid up to all-time highs, and they're within 20 30% of being a trillion-dollar company. A trillion-dollar company, okay, in part because investors have been anticipating for over a year that Apple is going to pull back this money, and they're going to do... Three things with the money, probably. 
Number one, buyback stock. Number two, pay dividends to shareholders, executives. Number three, probably do some acquisitions. That would be my assumption. That out, maybe not some, maybe not buy Disney or Netflix or something like that, but definitely put that money to use. Likely buying other companies, buying other technology stacks, buying other startups. Apple tech, does a decent number of acquisitions. Usually, it's companies you've never heard of, chip makers. Uh, you know, AI, you know, software designers, different kind of technology th- that kind of uh, supports their their uh, their hardware and, and and their software and their computers and stuff like that. And my final point is, you can benefit. You do not have to be rich to benefit. You just need to do what rich people do. Most people look at like a rich person's life and it's, you know, wake up in the morning, catch a private jet somewhere, go to the beach, show up late to work, leave early. They're making money the easy way. Now, you might not have the private jet, you might not have the Rolex watch, you might not drive the Mercedes, but you can be doing the exact same thing these people can be doing with their money. You might not be, you're not going to be buying 100,000 shares, 10,000 shares. You might just be buying one share. You might be buying two shares. And you might think, oh, it's not worth it. What if you bought one Bitcoin? What if you had bought three Bitcoin, four Bitcoin, five Bitcoin? When it was, you could, for $30, you could have bought like five Bitcoin, like, Six years ago, okay? That would be worth dollars $100,000 at this point. Now, the stock market's probably not going to move like that. But if you're my age, you might have a 20, 30-year horizon on that. So a modest investment of $1,000, $100, a few hundred dollars, a few thousand dollars could easily grow to a significant amount of money over a long period of time. And that is the attitude you need to take. That is economic 101. You can benefit from Trump's tax plan if you know what you're doing. If you're listening to CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times that is telling you your life's over, the economy's going to crash, the stock market's going to crash. They were telling you that last year when he won. And they were all 120 million percent wrong, dead wrong. And I am telling you right now as a rational person, in three years, I'll, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. In three years, I'll be analyzing the candidates. If Trump runs, he'll be among the candidates that I analyze. I'll be listening to what they have to say, primarily about the economy. And I'll be voting for whoever has the best message. I am not married to Donald Trump. I am not uh, blindly 
going to vote for him the second time around if someone like Bob Iger runs and has a good message and makes a compelling argument for me to vote for him. I will not vote for Trump if some Democrat comes out and actually starts talking about tax cuts, starts talking about the economy in a way that makes sense. This last time around, when you asked Hillary Clinton about the economy, she talked about taxing the rich more. And I'm sorry, guys. That was Barack Obama's plan. And as I explained on the last show and provided a link inside the show notes to a CNN article citing a Cal Berkeley study, 95% of Barack Obama's economic gains went to the 1%. Taxing them more does absolutely nothing. Taxing the rich does nothing for you. Thinking like a rich person, investing your money like a rich person does, not only in the stock market, but in other businesses. The reason why I can come on this podcast, on a free podcast, year after year after year, I've invested my money in stocks. I have some Bitcoin, not a lot. I have like $800. I mean, I started with like 20 bucks and now it's like 800 I have way more than that in gold and silver. So you guys telling me, oh, the stock market might crash. Uh, That'd be great. I have a hoard of gold and silver in a safe that would go up quite a bit. I have a website that actually would perform better in a down economy. Actually, I have like two or three websites that actually would perform better, get more traffic. The advertisers pay more for that traffic as well in a down economy. In fact, my number one website would absolutely skyrocket. I have, I have a website that I make about $10,000 a month. I make over $100,000 a year from a single website. In a down economy, that would likely triple So coming at me on Twitter and saying, oh, you know, the stock market might crash at any time. Guys, I can't wait. Literally, my income would triple. And then I would be able to take that money and buy all the stocks everybody's scared to own and in five, six, seven, eight years have 10 times more money, have 200% more, more money than I did before. And that's exactly what's going to happen. I have a plan. I have set goals. And that is exactly what's going to happen because I have a plan. I'm objective towards the plan. I am rational. I don't let my emotions get in the way of that plan. I don't let someone's tweets get in the way of my financial goals. So many of you out there are letting one man's tweets get in the way of your financial goals. And that is really idiotic. That is not economic 101. So hopefully you enjoyed. 
the podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed our Make America Great Again segment, our Economics 101. I encourage you guys, get out there on YouTube, get on there on, on a podcast and just search for podcasts on the economy, podcasts on running a business, podcasts on starting your own pass-through entity, podcasts on uh, how to save money, podcasts on the stock market, and actually educate yourself. Don't take the New York Times word for it. Don't take even investing websites. Don't go to The Motley Fool or Seeking Alpha or uh, CNN Money or whatever. Or don't turn, if God knows, don't turn on CNBC and buy what Jim Cramer is trying to tell you to buy. Don't, go, don't buy what the, the guys on Halftime Report are telling you to buy. Do your own research. Again, if you're a rational thinker, if you don't get tilted every time Trump speaks or tweets, if you get tilted every time Trump tweets or speaks, you need to give your money to somebody that doesn't get tilted, that can actually listen to him. And just like if Bernie Sanders was our president, if Hillary Clinton was our president, I would listen to them objectively and rationally and decide what I'm going to do with my money. This time, actually a little bit before this time last year, real quick point here, and then we'll close it out. This time last year, I was actually selling stocks. I was actually acquiring more gold and silver because I was actually anticipating Hillary Clinton winning and the stock market going down. I actually had the reverse... I, my prediction was 100% reverse from everybody else, except for economists that I actually listened to and respected. Economists that I listened to and respected said if Donald Trump would win, the stock market would go up. And they were absolutely right. They said if Hillary Clinton win, there would have been a risk. Again, nobody could predict things to certainty, but there was actually more of a risk to our economy if Hillary Clinton won. That's because her economic policies were not out of an economics 101 textbook, more out of like a socialism 101 textbook or a redistribution of wealth textbook. And those kind of things do not grow the economy as it stands in this country. Trying to tax the rich and redistributing it to the poor does not work. It has been tried and tried and tried and tried again. It does not work. Does lowering the taxes on rich people and having it trickle down to the poor people, does that work? That's debatable as well, whether that works as well. But either way, I'm going to be able to objectively and rationally listen to the leader of the country, the person setting the agenda on our economic policy and make decisions from there. And I suggest if you have a family, if you want to improve your financial outlook, you need to do the same. And if you can't do that, again, if you're tilted every time Trump speaks or tweets, you do not have the right mindset to invest your own money and to turn yourself from maybe middle to lower class, maybe lower class, maybe dead broke 
you do not have the skills to improve your life. Trust me on that. You need to get help. You either need to, an attitude adjustment or you need to give your money to somebody that has the right attitude. And don't DM me. Don't email me. It's not me. I don't manage other people's money. I rarely give out stock tips. I do not tell other people what to do specifically with their money. I do it with my own money, and that is a full-time job, and that is what I do on a daily basis. I do publish articles. I haven't in the last year, but I do occasionally publish research articles on specific stocks. But again, what I might find is a good investment, you need to do your own research. You need to make your own decisions on that. I cannot do that for you. What I can do is give you kind of some behavioral finance advice, give you some economic 101 tips and advice and insight. So hopefully you can improve your own investment decisions on your own. Hopefully that helps at least one of you out there. I'm not trying to change lives, not trying to change the world. But if I change one person listening, change one of your decision-making process, that is good enough for me because, guys, we're not here trying to make money. We're not here trying to get clicks and rate. I mean, I've been accused, oh, you just do this for ratings. Guys, I, I don't know how many people listen to this podcast. I don't, I don't promote the links. I don't put the podcast up and then say, hey, here's an autograph card and Tell me who I talked about in the fifth minute and, uh, you know, I don't have, you know, 15, you know, the 12 days of Christmas giveaway coming up. I don't care. When you've been doing this podcast as long as I have, people will listen. People won't. My life will go on. I have plenty of other things going on in my life. Plenty of other businesses I'm running. And quite frankly... You know, before I even eat lunch, I've, I've made more money in an afternoon than I made a whole week, maybe a whole month running a car shop. So I'm more worried about, you know, buying my, my wife, I bought my wife an Apple Watch, bought her uh, some Air Vapor Max shoes. Now I'm jealous because I don't want the Apple Watch, but I, I definitely want a pair of Air Vapor Max uh, Nikes, those are bomb. I'm literally like looking at Rolex watches every day. I'm still a few thousand bucks. I still need a few thousand bucks. I'm not trying to trying to buy it on credit. I'm trying to pay straight cash homie for a Rolex, a gold one, not a. I mean, I could buy one of the, you know, I could buy like a a stainless steel one, but you know, I'm not trying to buy a stainless steel watch. I'm reading the news, reading the tweets, watching people getting tilted, watching people that majored in Middle Eastern Europe basket weaving make comments on the economy, and I just laugh. I mean, you guys are literally comedy when you guys try to talk about the economy. So hopefully this segment, this podcast helped you out. 
We'll come back some other time, some other place. But for now, we are out of here.